This morning's sermon text is from Psalm 76. I'll give you a moment to flip there. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that in the Psalms we find so much information about who you are, descriptions of your characteristics, of you as a divine warrior, of a holy judge, and one who is to be feared. I pray that you open our eyes to your scriptures to see how much we should cherish them and rejoice in what they communicate to us, but I also pray that they lead us to see that you are good and yet also that you, if we come to f- before you in our sins, are one to be feared. And I pray that we do fear you. And I also pray that we do love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week is actually a historically, in church history, is actually a pretty big week. Um, the first of which, well, I guess last Sunday, so maybe that's not this week, but July 2nd in 1505, Martin Luther, so this is 518 years ago, Martin Luther, who was at law school, he was studying law in Erfurt in Germany, he decided to go home and see his family. And if you're familiar with Luther's story, you likely know this story. He was on his way home, and he gets caught in a violent thunderstorm. Lightning struck so closely to him that it knocked him off of his feet. He was terrified. Luther is of absolute, incredible fear in this moment. To quote one historian's recollection of the event, Luther thought that God had unleashed the very heavens to take his life. And so Luther, very well known, in response to this, Luther cries out, shouting, Saint Anne, save me and I will become a monk. Now, 
Of course, Luther saved this thunderstorm, or, we, or survived this thunderstorm. Of course, I wouldn't be telling a story if he didn't. And yet, interestingly, he calls out to St. Anne to protect him. So you might wonder who St. Anne is. And according to tradition, we don't know this for sure, but according to tradition, St. Anne is Mary, the mother of Jesus' mom. And yet also St. Anne is the patron saint, or one of, it's really confusing, um, the patron saint of minors. And interestingly enough, and how it connects to kind of our context, is Luther's dad, Hans, owned a copper mine. So that's an interesting tidbit that has nothing to do with the rest of my sermon. But, so Luther, in this desperation, cried out to one of the few saints that he knew, St. Anne. So it's possible that he was just trying to get to, well, if I get to the mother of the mother of Jesus, God will listen, which is kind of the scary part of some of the things about Catholicism, but we'll get there another time. And another part, though, it's likely this is just one of the few saints that Luther knew. So he cries out, St. Anne, save me and I will become a monk. Well, he survives the thunderstorm, and if you know anything of Luther, you know that for a time he did indeed become a monk. And yet, in this moment, the picture that Luther has of God is very similar to that which the psalmist portrays here. It's a picture of God as being a fearful God. The psalmist describes to us here in the psalm a lot about the character of God. And the, characters, the characteristics that are listed here are not simply the cozy characteristics. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is holy. Absolutely. Amen. But the characteristics we see here are that God is a warrior, that God is a judge, and that God is one to be feared. These aren't normally the characteristics and attributes of God that we name immediately when describing God. But that is what the psalmist is listing here. It's what the psalmist is celebrating about God. It's what the psalmist is praising about God. But yet concerning this psalm, we don't have any specific subscript that tells us exactly where it goes. The subscript, um, which would have been written by either the psalmist themselves or the editor, so inspired, says to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. So we don't know what it specifically correlates to, but... The psalm itself does seem to give us some information. So if we look at verse 1, we see, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel, which gives us a pretty specific event. So if you're not familiar with the history of Israel, after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam becomes king. Rehoboam is an awful king, and so the kingdom splits. Jeroboam, a former employee, as it were, of Solomon, becomes king over the northern kingdom, which is ten of the tribes, whereas Rehoboam becomes king over the southern kingdom, which is two tribes. So the northern kingdom is Israel, which is the capital of which is Samaria. The southern kingdom is Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem. So this reference here to Israel and to Judah leads the reader to say, oh, this is likely after the split of the kingdom. And those two tribes didn't really get along too well. And so with this psalm, there's a reference of Judah, there's a reference of Israel, reference of a split. But there's additional historical information that's tied to this psalm. There's a strong tradition that connects this psalm to the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19, which is kind of a confusing story. But it involves a king in Judah, one of Judah's two good kings, the king Hezekiah. 
The other one is Josiah, the boy king. And as we talked about in Sunday school a little bit this morning, the mark of a good king in Judah is how they respond to the idolatry of the people, how they respond to the high places, to the Asherah poles, what they do with those things. Hezekiah is one of the kings that tears those things down. And so the event that's referenced here, or that historians seem to think is being referenced here, specifically in verse 3, is that in the 14th year of Hezekiah, in the reign of Sorry, in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes to oppose Hezekiah. So about eight years before this, though, Sennacherib and Assyria take over Israel. So if you've heard of the Assyrian takeover of Israel, that is what's happening and what's described the chapter before in 2 Kings 17. So Assyria is a major superpower at the time that this event with Hezekiah occurs. And it's about eight years after Israel's taken over that Sennacherib comes and tries to threaten and really scare Hezekiah. And Hezekiah ultimately does find himself afraid of what's going to occur. And he's worried that the Lord is going to deliver Judah into Sennacherib's hands as he did with Israel. Yet Isaiah, who's the prophet at the time, reassures him, and the Lord tells Hezekiah not to fear Sennacherib. Sennacherib is given a warning from the Lord. He ignores said warning. And then Hezekiah prays, which is a remarkable pray. So for homework for you, go look at 2 Kings 18 and 19 and read that, because I unfortunately don't have time to recap the whole thing. Then Isaiah prophesies... And then all of this finds culmination, this remarkable event, and this is what seems to be at the core of the psalm here, is that in this event, the angel of the Lord in 2 Kings 18 descends upon the Assyrian camp and strikes down 185 Assyrians. In response to this, Sennacherib, filled with fear, retreats. And soon after, Sennacherib is killed. So I know it's a little confusing, so I hope you're all still with me in that. But ultimately, the major event that occurs is that the spirit of, or the angel of the Lord descends upon the Assyrian camp and kills a bunch of Assyrians. And it's a remarkable picture of God's glory, but also God is a divine warrior and a holy judge and one to be feared. I know that's quite a bit of history. There's a little bit more coming, so stick with me, but we've got a break look at the text before I get to a little bit more history. But I really want you to see that the scriptures are well connected and that the history throughout them is intertwined, that it's not a bunch of random unrelated stories, but that God is telling a consistent story of his mercy and of his goodness and his glory in his scriptures. But let me return to verse 1 because it's not just the reference to two different nations, two nations that are split, but we're given quite a bit more than just two locations there that's being communicated about God. In this first stanza, the fame and the dominion of God are being established. His name is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. So it's two phrases that are emphasizing God's name, his deeds, and his glory, and showing they are well known throughout all 12 tribes of Israel. Keeping in mind the ten tribes are in the north, and the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah are in the south. 
the, the statement being made is that all of the tribes, all of God's people know who he is and have no excuse. And then in verse 2, though, there's a statement concerning God's dwelling place. And we've been discussing this quite a bit, probably ad nauseum, in our adult Sunday school with Exodus. But this idea of dwelling place, it's a place of God's special dwelling. Of course, we believe that God is omnipresent. We believe that he is not limited by space or by time, but that he is fully and simultaneously present everywhere. So when we refer to the dwelling place of God, what we're referring to is a special place where God dwells to engage with his people. The Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, all of these are examples of God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. And yet in this verse, or in this statement in verse 2, we again have additional places listed. We have his dwelling, or his abode is established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. And so both of these end up referring to Jerusalem. Salem, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you'll know that's where Melchizedek comes from. But that's kind of what this is referring to, but not the same. It's actually just Jerusalem ends with Salem. It's an abbreviated way of referring to Jerusalem. And yet Salem is in the land of Canaan that eventually becomes the land that Israel inhabits. And Zion also, though, does refer to the kingdom of Jerusalem, or sorry, of Judah. And so it's referring to Jerusalem. Both of these are emphasizing Jerusalem and the temple, the place where the Lord dwells. So it's his abode is in Salem, his dwelling place is in Zion, and it demonstrates that God himself is victorious. If you look at verse 3, we see how this picture continues. Let me read verse 3. There he broke, so there, Salem, Zion, Jerusalem. It is there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. The picture is that God is a triumphant, victorious warrior. And I have to pose a question just for reflection and thought. Do you think of God as a triumphant and victorious warrior? Because I seem to think that a lot of times we don't think of God that way. But this warrior language continues on, but it's not the only picture that's given in this psalm. Verse 4, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. So we just sang this a few moments ago and how great is our God. We, one of the major parts of that, song, or of that song is that God is clothed in majesty. And the psalmist continues, though, to praise God in adoration. More majestic. And this language of majesty here, it connects to God's resplendent beauty and God's resplendent light. And yet, it's an odd statement if you look at it entirely. More majestic than the mountains full of prey. And so the Bible is full of compliments and praises that we might find a little odd in our culture today. So if you think of something like Song of Songs, that's the great example of bizarre compliments that is Solomon or the writer in that, likely not Solomon, that's a conversation for another time. But in that, the, the husband in that text is giving these compliments to his wife, saying things like, your neck is like the Tower of David. And for us, it's just, that seems bizarre. Similar, if we look at a compliment or a praise like this, 
that God is being celebrated as being more resplendent than a mountain full of game, it's a little odd for us. I mean, if you're a hunter, that probably makes sense. But if not, I mean, consider if you don't have a fridge or a grocery store or if you don't have a cattle ranch. In instances where you have to hunt your own food, then a mountain full of game is a wonderful blessing in how you would feed your family. The Lord comes down the mountains in splendor and he rips the boastful of their spoil. Take note of that. It's in verse 4, he's celebrating that the Lord is glorious, that he's majestic. And then immediately follows that up with you rip the stout-hearted of their spoil. They sank into sleep. These people are undone and they have been conquered and the Lord is victorious. And the Lord's rebuke, the horse and rider lay stunned. And that's a familiar picture. I mean, it definitely is a familiar picture of the people of Israel. And also, if you consider back to Exodus, in Exodus 15, there's this, this wonderful declaration that as the people have left the land of Egypt, the first thing that Moses does in Exodus 15 is he sings this psalm of praise. He declares, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And to read verse 1 of that, though, it's the Lord is a warrior. It comes later in there. But the first thing in this song that Moses sings is, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So in this psalm of victory, the psalmist also seems here to recall, at least to some extent, what occurred in the Exodus and what occurs in Exodus 15. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. And of course, that should those two things should correlate with as we consider Exodus 15, as we look at Psalms 76, 6 there, that similar language that God is triumphing over horse and rider. And yet it's an important description of the Lord in the Bible that we tend to ignore. The Lord is a warrior. He destroys the wicked and he puts false gods to shame. And yet, part of the declaration that the Lord is a warrior carries something else to it. And it's that God has enemies. We live in a culture, though, as when people think about God, if they think about God, they generally think that God is always on their side. When we think of God's enemies, though, First, we have to acknowledge that God has enemies. That's important. But we also need to make sure that we are careful not to define all of our enemies as God's enemies. Now, when we think about who God's enemies are, we should probably align those similarly. But we must make sure that just because we think of someone as being our enemy, that we don't immediately say that's God's enemy. Here's an example. If we simply assume that God's enemies are those who disagree with us politically or say China or North Korea, it's very possible that these people indeed do follow into God's enemies, but we must make sure that our scope is not that small because we cannot exclusively define God's enemies by the way that we would define our political enemies because it ends up being a massive blind spot. 
If we look at the book of Romans, Paul there makes it very clear that our default state is that we are sinners at enmity with God. We are sinners, and in that enmity, in Romans 5.10, and I'll read that in a moment in context, but in Romans 5.10, it refers to people who are outside of the people of God as God's enemies. And in that text, Paul is applying that to us before Christ. We sing songs, not today we didn't, but we sing songs like, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and that's a great hymn. I'm not dogging on the hymn. Um, But we cannot forget that people around us have lives that are not marked by what a friend we have in Jesus, but what an enemy we have made of Jesus. Contrary to what culture around us thinks, Jesus is not your homeboy. Both one that lacks any sort of reverence, but also the people who wear shirts like that generally don't acknowledge that Jesus is a triumphant victor. And that if you think of Psalm 110, which we discussed a few months ago, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and his enemies are being made into a footstool. Those who, for those who are enemies of God, it's not going to go well. And I cannot assume that everyone here, just because we are in church, understands this. I cannot assume that everyone who is here is a Christian or a believer or that their state before God is one who can call him friend. Because ultimately, if we don't confess Christ as Lord, we are enemies with God. And yet to return to Luther, this was part of what Luther had hoped to find in the monastery. He hoped that being part of the monastic system and being a monk, that he would earn favor with God simply by working as a, pre- or as a monk, simply as working in the system. He would be able to reconcile his issues and be able to earn favor with God. But yet at some point during his monasticism, his, his period as a monk, he, he made the statement in responding to Staupitz, who was the kind of priest over the monastic order. He, Luther had this issue where he would go into the confession and he would confess his sins. And for most of them, it would be 10 minutes. They'd get through the sins they'd confess in the last day. For Luther, it was 15, 20, 30 hours. There's at least one instance of Martin Luther going in to confess his sins for six hours. And yet at some event, Staupitz responds to him, do you even love God? At another point, he says, come back when you've confessed real sins, which is concerning, because Luther had so much guilt over the things that he'd done in the last 24 hours. And Luther's response about this was, love God, sometimes I hate him. And the core of that is that Luther did not know or understand the gospel. What Luther saw was that God is holy and that Luther is a sinner. He was driven by guilt and by understanding that God is holy. He, at another point, describes Christ as an angry judge with a sword in his hand. He's not wrong. But that's not where it ends. And that, though, this text, though, does indeed show that God is a judge. 
And I mentioned there was another significant event in church history that happened this past week, and that's on July 8th, so yesterday, in 1741, 282 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached likely the most famous sermon in American history. In Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's the second time he preached that sermon. The first time was in his church in Massachusetts. And in that sermon, he describes to the sinner this scenario. And this is a quote from that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. And again, this is describing the sinner. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most holy venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment." Tis to be ascribed to nothing else, that you did not go to hell last night, that you was suffered to awake again in this world. After you closed your eyes to sleep, there is no other reason to be given why you have not been dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you hadn't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful wicked manner of attending his solemn worship yea there is nothing else to be given as to reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell so to kind of bring that to forward into our own language what Edwards is saying is that in your sins you are viewed by God as we would view a spider or an insect that we hold over the fire. And the only reason that you in your sins have not died in your sleep last night is because God is gracious and merciful. And if you know anything about the history of this sermon, the second time that Edwards preached that is what began the Great Awakening. It is in response to this that many people came to faith in Christ Jesus. And that's not how the sermon ends. That's actually the, kind of the middle of the sermon. The very end of the sermon, though, Luther ends with his final plea. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and flee from the wrath to come. So Edwards in there declares that though you in your sins are abominable to God, in Christ you may be forgiven and welcomed into his people. You may flee his wrath. I mentioned Romans 5.10 a moment ago that declares those, declares the sinner, those outside of Christ as enemies. But let me read that in context. Starting in verse 8. It goes back quite a bit further, but this conveys the idea that we need to see this morning. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be, sh be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, should we be saved by his life. So when we think of God's enemies, we should be reminded that that is what we once were. And that anyone we know and see and engage with who is outside of Christ still has that title. Though the wrath of God is on sinners, salvation is to be found in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful salvation that is. And a wonderful declaration for those who know Jesus. Luther understood that God is to be feared. Clearly, Edwards understood that God is to be feared. And this is a major theme of this psalm. We see it in verse 7, we see it in verse 11, and in verse 12. But why should God be feared? And it's, I remember when I was in middle school, we read some poem or something, and one of the students, one of my classmates, rose his hand and asked, why would we fear God? And to his extent, and this was in seventh or eighth grade, so relatively young, his idea is, why would we be afraid of God? Well, that's what we're going to read in this psalm, is that it, the Lord is a divine warrior, but God is also a mighty and holy judge. From his throne in heaven, he utters judgment. And that's verse 8. And though even the psalm that speaks of God is judge, and God is warrior, and God is fearful, and yet the psalmist celebrates that God, the holy judge, will save the humble of the earth. So who are these humble? Who are the ones that God is saving? The humble are those who call upon the name of the Lord. This works in multiple facets. On one hand, you have to be humble when you understand who you are in Christ and who you are outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, you are a sinner. And as Paul describes in Ephesians, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But the sinner has been made alive in Christ. Being made alive in, because God is rich in mercy. It's in Ephesians 1, verse 4, we read that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. And those who are in Christ, to the Christian, you have no choice but to be humbled because you understand that you are a wretched sinner that deserves judgment. But Christ, who has been chosen before the foundation of the world, has no choice but to be humble. There's no place to be boastful or arrogant. If you remember back to the psalm we read last week, the boastful and the arrogant do not have a hopeful eternity waiting for them. It's in Hebrews 10 that we read, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the loving God. Because God is a holy judge, he should be feared. But then in the final stanza of this psalm, we've got God exalted as being fearful. In verse 7, the question is, you are to be feared. 
Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? And of course the answer is no one. But in verse 11, the answer seems to become clear. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. But at verse 10, immediately before that, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath will be put on like a belt. We see that God's power and wrath is so intense that even the wicked and wrathful will praise God for his majesty as he triumphs over them. The psalmist then turns to exhortation. In view of God's wrath, in view of God's characteristics as a divine warrior, a holy judge, and as a fearful victor, you should praise the Lord. I read a moment ago, make your vows and perform them. And it's a sense of condemnation against lip service. It's the characteristics of God should lead you away from just saying something and not following through. Do not just make a vow or a commitment because it's the holy or pious thing to do, but follow through with that vow. Follow through with that commitment. There is no righteousness to be found in empty, half-hearted worship done solely for appearance sake. And Martin Luther, as you consider this, in that thunderstorm, as he cries out, save me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk, he makes a vow and he follows through with that vow. He keeps the vow that he makes. But take note of how Psalm 76 ends in verse 12. Who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Whereas the psalm begins with God being known by his people in Israel and in Judah, it ends with God being feared by the nations of the earth. The psalm begins with a statement that God is known by his people and he makes their dwelling among them. And yet for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who understand that they are sinful people and look to Christ to forgive them of their sins because Christ on the cross offered himself as a sacrifice. God has made those people his dwelling. And it's in Isaiah 59:2 that Isaiah writes that your sins have created a separation between you and your God because of the people's sin in the Old Testament, they could not have direct access with him or he would have to destroy them. And that was what we looked at this morning in Exodus in Sunday school, that God says, I will not go with you because I will destroy you because you are sinful. And this is the reason for why, and this ties in our adult Sunday school, our children's Sunday school, and even this text, this is why there's a temple curtain that prevents people from entering into the whole, most holy chamber of the temple. That it's a, in a sense, a keep-out sign. And only the high priest could enter one day a year after several sacrifices. We'll discuss that in Sunday school in two weeks if you've got questions about that. God is holy and we are sinful. We do not get to just walk into the presence of God. Our sins prevent us from being in the presence of God because he is so incredibly holy. But the book of John tells us something miraculous. That Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. So that even the psalm shows us that 
His dwelling place is in Zion, but in John 1, we read that Jesus came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man and dwelt among his people, lived a life of perfect obedience to God, died the death of a sinner that we should have died for the trespasses and sins that we committed, but then After that, as Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his people a seal, a gift. He gifts those who believe in him the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them. God has blessed his people with his presence among them. And it's not just limited to Jerusalem or to the temple. Wherever there are believers, there is God's spirit dwelling in them. In 1 Corinthians 6, in verses 19 and 20, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because God has made you into his dwelling place, you ought to live like a holy people. Much of Paul's writings can be just simply described by this statement. You are a redeemed people. You must act accordingly. But a few verses before what I just read in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this. This is the context for why he's saying, glorify God in your body. Or do you not know that the, unright the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immorality, or neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty expansive list. Verse eleven. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, you must put to death the deeds of the flesh. We, often in the church and often just in our culture, are very quick to dismiss that God is a warrior who always triumphs. He hates sin and he will judge sinners. And while I hope not, some of you might be thinking, okay, pastor, I know this. I've been a Christian my whole life. I believe in Jesus. I get it. Hope that's not your attitude. But if that is the case, does the idea that God is a divine warrior, a holy judge, and one to be feared, does that influence the way you see others? Do you see others who are outside of Christ as someone who is going to incur this wrath? Does this influence the way you see your neighbor or your unbelieving children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren? Does this inspire you to share the good news of Jesus with others? To show them that they can flee the wrath to come by finding themselves as identified in Christ Jesus? This text shows us that we will either know this holy, fearful, divine warrior judge's Savior, or, like the
like the princes of the earth, tremble in the face of his wrath. For the Christian, there is a wonderful declaration that our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. With, alongside that declaration, we are to share the good news with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us boldness and opportunities to share the good news with others, to show them that though you are a divine warrior, a holy judge, and a one to be feared, that in Christ we have been washed and justified and sanctified. There is good news in Christ Jesus. Your scriptures tell us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that Jesus, the name of Jesus is the name above every name and the only name we've been given under heaven by which we might be saved. I pray that we delight in the gospel that we've been given. Delight in the good news of Jesus Christ crucified who has canceled the record of our debt, taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness. And I pray that shapes the way we interact with others, but I pray we still fear you knowing that you are a good God, a holy God, a righteous God, and that you are triumphing over all evil and you are putting all enemies under the footstool of Jesus. And I pray that we have hope and faith in Christ who is reigning as king. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.